0: Welcome to Keep Going, a podcast about failure and success, hosted by John Biggs. Every week, we talk to an amazing person about a time they failed and what they learned. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going. Welcome back to Keep Going, a podcast about failure and success. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Remington Scott. He's the CEO and founder of HyperReal. Uh, it's a, uh, it's, I guess it's a, a digital identity slash uh, digital goods service. What are you guys up to over there?
1: All right, thanks, John. Great to be here. Um, looking forward to this this show with you today. Uh, so, Hyperreal is um, a company that powers ownership, control, performance, and monetization of identity at scale across digital ecosystems. Mm-hmm. We're primarily focused on. Uh, digital humans and emotionally real digital humans, bringing them to life and giving them opportunities when they cross over into the digital world.
0: Okay. I mean, I, I kind of just want to talk about that the whole show, but I think yeah. this is pretty cool. Um, why don't you just give a little bit more information on that? Cause that sounds like a, a pretty fascinating concept, especially now that now that the, these digital humans can essentially talk and, and, Appear to think like us, which is pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, uh, thanks. I appreciate that. So, um, we we, st- you know, we started Hyperreal on the on the concept that t- talent needs to own their digital identity, and uh, that digital identity can be very valuable and can work for them. Um, it's a concept that allows a person to be able to scale themselves in a digital world. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'll, uh, I'll just back up a little bit here and, and give you a little bit of my background um, to understand how we got here. Uh, in the early 1990s, I was uh, one of a handful of people that uh, first identified motion capture when it was in a uh, medical lab. A motion capture was being used as gate analysis. Uh, for hip replacement surgery, mm-hmm. and uh, and we effectively took the technology uh, that was built uh, for medical analysis and brought it into the entertainment space and built the first motion capture studio in the world dedicated to entertainment. And this is this a game was company. this was
0: fairly primitive at that point. You're, it was this it was this at the point where you're like putting little dots all
1: over the body, etc. Yeah, th- these were the markers that were being put on the body, um, and. Uh, even though it was primitive, the technology that that we were working with was so advanced that um, it's still in play to this day. The very mm-hmm. same um, technology that we were using, with um, obviously updates along the way, but it's the tech that is, um, you know, you could see literally on movies like Avatar.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so, uh, you know, my my job back then was a director, and I was you know, working in this high-tech studio, uh, creating, um, you know, digital performances for video games. And uh, effectively, we were the first people in the world that were looking at realistic, moving digital humans interactively. Um, so, you know, uh, really got a sense of early on of, of what the opportunity and possibilities were for, for these uh, types of Emotionally real digital humans. I was Mm -hmm. able to take the tech, brought it into film, um, was a director on the first movie to use the technology. Um, That movie was uh, Final Fantasy. All the principal humans were motion captured. And then I brought that into um, Weta Digital, where I was the supervisor, uh, the motion capture supervisor at Weta. I set up their performance capture stage. And oversaw the creation of the performance of for Gollum and Sméagol yep. for *Lord of the Rings*. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how we got to hyperreal um, is that you know my career was building these very high-end realistic digital humans for these activations like films or video games, and they were often a digital twin of a celebrity of some kind. Uh, as we were getting better in the fidelity and quality like with the work we did on Spider-Man 2. We were creating the digital twins of Tobey Maguire and uh, and the other uh, performers of, and uh, movies like The Watchmen where we created Doc Manhattan. Um, and, and at the end of the film or at the end of the game, these digital twins, uh, which were, again, they're quite expensive and time consuming to build at the time, they wouldn't be able to work again they were just mm-hmm. created for that one activation and the actor whose likeness was created they didn't have the rights to continue to use that and the producer that had paid for it doesn't have the rights to continue to use that actors likeness without their permission so these assets just basically go away and Hyperreal was started so that way we can create an um, a um, a platform, an ecosystem, for talent to own their digital likeness, and then use that across all of these opportunities and monetize that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's so it's the so it's like so what's his name? Andy Serkis can't run around as Gollum in anywhere else outside of outside of the movies, right? It's but what you're proposing is that I as a even if I never show my face, potentially I could just be, I don't know, captain, uh, s- podcaster and just appear as captain podcaster all around the internet. And people would pay me for that privilege, I suppose. Right.
1: Well, I, I think, I think that's a, that's an interesting concept. Um, if you could get them to pay you for it, uh, <laughs> it's all what <with> the market. <laughs> sure. What, will, what the market will bear. Yeah. So some of the people we work with, um, they include, um, a talent like Madison Beer, we created her digital identity. It's a, uh, uh, a, a, a her, her uh, we call it a hyper model. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about avatars, uh, we don't really use the term avatar that much because it, on the spectrum of digital humans, it could rep, represent something from a caricature to something that is a hyper real digital human. And so we brand our hyper real digital humans by calling them hyper models. So Madison's hypermodel. Um, was able to uh, perform in a virtual concert experience that was uh, created by Sony Immersive Music Division. And um, that virtual concert experience uh, was interactive. You can, uh, it was pixel streamed, um, uh, ray trace rendered, pixel streamed via 5G uh, onto your mobile device. You can move around the Sony Music Hall Mm -hmm. virtual um, environment. And you could go anywhere you wanted to look at her uh, on your phone, your mobile device, uh, and experience this as if you were there at a real concert, looking at it through your mobile device, <laughs> like okay. most people do. Um, and, and then, and then the same thing was premiered on TikTok, uh, where you know she's got 20 million Instagram followers, and you know she was able to showcase the concert there. Uh, and then it's been used for Sony's. Um, De- development team on PS VR 2 which is uh, coming out shortly mm-hmm. and uh, on the PS5 so we could see the same concert now in VR and also Sony has a new screen uh, called Spatial Reality. It's an absolutely mind-blowing 3D technology monitor. You don't need to wear glasses. It's a holographic 3D screen. So all these new technology spaces and, and monitors and uh, that you're seeing um, are you know the hyper models can perform across all of these opportunities and that's i think that's the key thing is is to be able to have an interoperable asset that talent owns and and can be monetized and can work and be able to engage with fans in an emotionally real way and and uh, and create new ip and content
0: mm-hmm. all right so that's that's completely fascinating and i'm 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 sad. I, I used to have a podcast about the future, and maybe I'll just restart it up just so we can do this again. But uh, you've been in the you've been in the business for a long time. Uh, we've got it feels like you're at a point in the continuum where you're just on the cusp of of success with this stuff, um, and I think you would argue that you already you have already passed that that cusp. Uh, but what did it take to get here, uh, especially coming from a um, if we're talking to our artist friends. We're talking to our video game, um, developer friends. Uh, what did you have to go through to get to the point where you are today?
1: Okay. Uh, That's, that's a great question. we could talk about this for a very long time. Um, and I have, I think, I think my story is somewhat unique. Um, but there is enough here that, um, there's some common, um, elements that could be taken from it. Um, I, let me just start by framing it. Um, you know, I grew up um, as loving animation, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I grew up as a huge fan of, of the Walt Disney Studios and the work that they were creating. And I wanted to be an animator. And I love the idea of how animation um, is, a, is a new medium um, for storytelling. It's it's it was, actually it's 100 years old, but it's mm-hmm. a different medium for storytelling. And. Um, that was my trajectory, you know, and, and lots of appreciation and love for 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 the animation community, and and uh, and that's where I started. But uh, along the way, as I was looking at um, new technologies, I f- I found that that I was more interested in utilizing, you know, innovation and and putting t- uh, different technology pieces together to find new ways to create animation. And so there's a fundamental change between the animation of the 20th century and what that looked like. Even even when it went from 2D hand-drawn to 3D, it was still hand-keyframed. Animation was about the artists creating the animation. They were the the creators, um, and they, they, they create the illusion of life by creating a, you know, a number of, of, of frames that come together in a sequence, and when you play it in a sequence, the character or the drawings actually move, and they look alive. And
0: in, um, in the, the keyframe world, the, 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 the artist only had to do one or two frames, and then, the, and then you would extrapolate, right? Is that, is that what we're thinking here?
1: I think that, that there's all different types of, of how keyframing works. But that is effectively the idea, you you know, they're drawing it and um, and then there is a in-betweener, whether it's a computer mm-hmm. that does the in-betweens or there's another artist that would used to do the in-betweens. Um, that's the process. And the illusion of life comes from the, perf- the performance created by the artist. Um, now, what I was doing was fundamentally different. It was a quantum change in how um, animation is created, to the point where I don't think the term animation really is appropriate. Um, when I look back on it, it's more like simulation. And uh, you know, when I worked with, on motion capture, it was not about the animator animating; it's about the performer creating a performance. Mm-hmm. So that's a fundamental change. You know, you, you, you're capturing reality instead yep. of representing reality. Huh, it's like okay. the difference between painting and you look at paintings uh, from the history of art and then you get to Jackson Pollock and, and you go, you know, that fundamental difference that made Jackson Pollock different was he was no longer representing nature as an artist, he was nature. Okay. And so... Right. Yeah, interesting. You see what I'm saying? So, so yeah. as animation goes, this this is that kind of a change. It was no longer representing what life looks like as an artist. It was actually capturing life. Mm-hmm. And so that um, was uh, a, 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 a breakthrough, but at a time when... Animation animators didn't want that because it fundamentally meant Or what animators felt the animation community and I'm gonna just say in a whole um, Felt that this was a threat to their mm-hmm. to their industry um, Because it, it was it, it took away the artistry that they felt that they were bringing to, to the table and so, if you're talking about, you know, having to overcome an obstacle, uh, this was it. This was a, a very large obstacle for me. Um, you know, working with the new technology and trying to integrate that into the entertainment space, uh, where the entertainment space was dominated by animation studios like Walt Disney. And, 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 and they just didn't want to have any of this. There, was, there, were, there, were, there were Pixar movies where at the end of the movie, there was a, a, a disclaimer mm-hmm. that said no motion capture was used <laughs> oh my god <laughs> the creation of this movie and it said a hundred it said something like quality assurance <laughs> oh meaning god. that like motion capture was like sub quality or something Ugh. right so like when you have a major animation studio literally putting this at the end of their movies you know that that you know that's like war, you know, mm-hmm. That that's, that is like, you know, a war cry. That's a, that's a declaration of war. Sure. Like, you know, we're not going to take this substandard type of, of thing. And, um, you know, my, my role, I was very unique in this time frame as a uh, motion capture director. There weren't that many of them, like, you know, getting a job. There weren't job lots. Let me just back this up for a second. Mm-hmm. I was telling—I was about to say there weren't any job postings for a motion capture director <laughs> during this time period because it just really wasn't a thing. Okay. So, like, going to find jobs, I had to make them, and I had to find people that wanted to to um, to, to to create this level of 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 new kind of animation, and uh, and it meant you know. Connecting with um, very future-thinking people, um, and you know, when we were at Acclaim doing this, you know, we were looking at Hollywood, and we were amazed at the at the uh, at the time period that we were doing this. You know, Jurassic Park came out, mm-hmm. and and they had these realistic dinosaurs that were mind blowing. You know, and, and we were like, okay, the rendering quality that could be created out of Hollywood is absolutely stunning. And we've got this technology where we could create the life of a real human. We could, you know, go combine those pieces and we've got something really fascinating here. So we went to Hollywood to try to pitch this and show it. And like I said, it was completely, uh, uh, you know, there was no, no one wanted to adapt it. None of the, vis- none of the uh, visual, visual effects studios wanted to, to deal with this because the animators didn't want to have anything to do with it, and um, it, it just wouldn't it wouldn't pick up, you know, for many years. It just wouldn't. It wasn't a part of that narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, who the first movie to use motion capture for all of the principal humans as a, as a completely animated movie um, was created by um, a Japanese video game company called Square.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was the Final Fantasy film, the Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. So innovation didn't happen in Hollywood. It happened outside of Hollywood from a video game company. They completely funded that movie themselves. And the director had a belief that he could create a more realistic cyber movie, if you will, mm-hmm. that um, you know, was, was more emotionally real than animated characters. And uh, and that had to happen outside of Hollywood. But if I back this up a little bit, you know, my my kids were asking me, they said, you know, when you were younger, what did you want to do when you grew up? And this was not this is not an option. <laughs> you yeah. know, creating digital humans. <laughs> there wasn't even a science fiction writer that wrote about this.
0: Creating and creating and uh, I mean almost like hiring out digital humans is even a more interesting aspect It's sort of like that that idea the idea of the avatar, right, but uh, In pop culture we really yeah, we never really thought about that Maybe maybe up until like maybe neuromancer, right something like that Like a real cyberpunk kind of situation.
1: Yeah, that's right into in the 90s when I was you know I I was I was a child of the I was a teenager in the 80s -hmm. I grew up, you know in that in that, you know in that time period like you know, I watched movies like 2001 Space Odyssey. There was a, you know, a digital voice, an AI human. How mm-hmm. was the AI human? But they didn't have a face. He was a voice. Yep. And, you know, even even on, on that yeah, level... Night, even Knight
0: Rider was just a car.
1: <laughs> yeah. As that futurist, they didn't even imagine that you could create an a, a emotionally realistic digital human that you would think is like a real human. So... So this whole narrative that we're talking about has been at odds against reality. When I'm, even today, when I'm talking to studios or people of what we're doing, it's a lot of convincing people that this can be done because they've never seen it done before Mm -hmm. on the level that we're doing at HyperReal, or or they're just learning about it, and there's an excitement now, and we're starting to go over that tipping point. but you know, my career has effectively been you know, you know against the opposition of very large, influential animation studios mm-hmm. that have um, put everything that they have in all their beliefs against the things that I believe in, and um, at the end of the day, uh, y- you know the results are very clear. Um, the biggest movie that is out. This year, uh, the highest-grossing film is Avatar: The Way of the Water. Yep, it is a movie that is simulating reality. You know, Jim Cameron has been using motion capture to do this, and people want to see new realities. And you know, I don't know when the last time a two D animated film was. As a matter of fact, I don't even think Disney makes them anymore. But what we do know, they're making are remakes of all these 2D animated films into 3D to be more hyper-realistic. Like Lion King was a 3D computer generated movie because people aren't looking at 2D animated movies anymore. Mm -hmm. And now they've got a live action um, Little Mermaid. (laughs) So the industry is all moving towards hyper-realism in in how um, we're we're enjoying the content um, because it just has more of a, a human emotional impact.
0: Did did you ever get Did you ever get into a situation where you had to convince somebody in Hollywood that this is the future, and they just wouldn't listen?
1: You can't convince if if they don't want it. They, there's no convincing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Like people have their opinions, and that's it. Um, over time, you know, they may um, come to it, but you know. It's people who are like visionaries. Um, So, like Peter Jackson, uh, you know, when I went to go work at Weta, uh, he was the whole animation team was animating Gollum keyframe style. And he saw it and he said, that's just not real enough. And I've got this great actor, Andy Serkis, who's he, he felt it would be amazing if you could take Andy's performance and put that into Gollum.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And every time they tried that, the animators would get in the way. They would add their thing to it that they felt was an animation. They'd, you know, that's what animators do. They add their thing to it. It's nothing. You know, it's nothing wrong with that. It's it's what they do. They're really good at it. But it's not what reality is. And PJ wanted it to be reality. He wanted it to be Andy. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he was looking for a solution. And when he came to me for the solution. um... I I was like, yeah, we can do we can totally do this. And you know, my first job there at Weta was to do a test with Andy to to show him what could be done. And he compared it with what he had already and said, This is the future, we're gonna do this from now on. And what and it's been the primary performance tool, animation tool at Weta ever since. They don't it's a primary. Um for humans. So
0: the and- way well the way the way you told this the way you told this story I think it's pretty interesting about what's happening right now with your with ChatGPT, uh, essentially all these quote unquote white collar workers are saying well we're going to get replaced by this AI that can I don't know write a memo uh, faster and better than us we, than we could ever could but I think I think yours is your story is sort of a story of redemption because you were about to you literally were of uh, the the, the the artists were scared uh, of this technology to the point where they were, <laughs> where they were just, just had disclaimers at the end that said they didn't use it, and now they embrace it uh, 100%, and everybody embraces it. I wonder if there's any kind of parallels that we can draw there.
1: Well, there are. Um, with, with what's happening now, what we're seeing is there's copyright issues. Mm-hmm and and this is this is a this is fundamentally going to be the problem and again at hyperreal because we're we're really ahead of the game here we see this and we're building for the, for copyright protection on all the digital dna that we acquire for all of our identities so your digital dna that that, that we create for you is several components it's how you look it's how you move and how you speak. Mm-hmm. And when we acquire that and we hold that, we copyright that for you. And now that becomes the training data for AI. Okay. So when an AI wants to be able to use information on you, they have to pay and license it to you. Now, I don't know about ChatGPT or any of this other AI out there, but my understanding is they're not paying for any of the stuff that they've scraped on the internet at all. And you can go out there and prompt images that you wanna create by typing a text prompt, and it's effectively pulling images all over the internet that are copyrighted by people, Mm -hmm. and it's creating new images, and those people aren't being, uh, they're not able to um, collect anything from that as far as monetization and that's wrong and that's not how it should be and we don't and we are ethically against that mm-hmm. so that's why we're building the database and library that is the training data for AI that can be used and licensed appropriately now you know when you look at let me talk about this for example because one of the things that we really understand are deep fakes because they've been around for a little while so Um, a deep fake is, is effectively this in motion. It's this AI that, that, that does a face replacement or does another part of, of the image as replaced. And it trains on a massive amount of images. Mm -hmm. Um, let's say it's, it's, um, uh, Tom Cruise deep fake. We've seen those on TikTok. They look amazing. Um, But the images that are trained are from Tom Cruise movies. And those movies are owned by the producers and studios. They pay Tom Cruise a lot of money to be in those movies. Do you think they want you to just take Tom Cruise out of their movie and go and use it without them getting paid?
0: Yeah, that's why it's like that's that's the question. How do you how do you tag quote-unquote the identity of somebody in that situation? It's fascinating,
1: right? That's what we're doing at Hyperreal, hmm And that fundamentally means that um, What's happening is that even even if Tom Cruise said I want a deep fake of myself And I you know, he doesn't have the rights to his images from all of those movies hmm I don't know those contracts. I'm just saying generally most people don't you could be any actor you get hired by a movie they pay you to be in the movie they own that movie and those rights to those movies so effectively you don't own it so if all of the images of you from public uh, you know that the public knows are from movies that you effectively don't own the rights to your image in those movies you can't even use that for yourself
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it's a fundamental problem yeah Because you want to have a digital identity that can be used and you can monetize and license out. So that's what we do at HyperReal. We build these assets that are owned by the talent and they could be used to create an unlimited amount of training data. And that way, talent can be monetizing their identity and this works for them. It's the solution that works for everybody
0: so after after being told that nobody wanted this and this is the worst idea in the world and and uh and the future was going to be ink and paint i suppose uh you've come to the point where you've solved m- lots of
1: of the industry's problems when it comes to this kind of thing i uh, you know i, I it's th- thanks i appreciate it I, I think we're solving them and i think that uh, what i do really well is um is I work with technologies and innovations, and I find solutions that um, that make sense um, and and can generate revenue and can be monetized and is ethically correct, you know, and and that's where my head's at. Um, so, you know, um, I think we're we're on the right track. I think we're we're on the right path here. Um, you know, we're doing something that hasn't been. You know, it's it's a new industry. It's a whole new business. And like mm-hmm. I said, when I was a kid, this business wasn't existing at all. And um, I've been a part of it from the very beginning. And every step of the way, uh, I have to say, has been, you know, not easy, not easy, not easy at all. Because you know, I've, I've had to work with some of the most demanding producers and directors in the industry, creating images, you know, that have to hold up on you know, blockbuster feature films and. Mm-hmm pole video games. And, you know, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. <laughs> um, so it, it's been a struggle. But, you know, that's I, I like that. I don't know why it is, but I like doing things that are very difficult and um, are worthy. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on that path and I'm going to, you know, we keep moving forward and pushing this forward. And eventually, uh, you know, my goal is to make sure that everyone has a digital identity, not just a list talent and top tier performers. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's an interesting journey. I'm, 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 thank you for, for um, <laughs> talking to me about it and having me on and, yeah. uh, you know, I'd be happy to to continue talking about this as we make more progress.
0: Wonderful. Remington, thanks for joining us. This is uh, this has been fascinating. Over at Hyperreal, you can check out uh, some of your work over there. Uh, eventually, I want to do I want to just freeze myself at like age I don't know twenty four maybe, uh, and I'll just be digital for the rest of my life if that's possible.
1: Yep. Let me let me, we'll, know. We'll, let we'll me know when we that. can scan
0: me. Yeah, we can scan my head. <laughs> and just put me on a just put me on a different body. I'm John Biggs. This has been Keep Going, a podcast about failure and success. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in
0: to this episode of Keep Going. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going.